Welcome to Pints and Politics, the Thursday, June 4th, 2020 edition. This program was recorded online last Monday, June 1st. At the end of the program, I'll give out our social media contact information. Joining me for this online discussion about money and financial issues emerging during this pandemic is our guest panel of Gwyneth James, co-owner of Cody and James Chartered Professional Accountants, Stuart Harrison, President and CEO of the Greater Peterborough Chamber of Commerce, Sylvia Sutherland, journalist and former Peterborough mayor, and Paul Bennett, business owner and developer. So thanks to all of you for joining me today. Now, for many of us, and I'll use myself as an example, who are not directly involved in finances or business management, we don't understand the basic dynamics of how our economy works. In my case, it's compounded by the fact that I worked for five and a half years for Royal Trust back in the 90s in Toronto, but that was in human resources and training and development. So I picked up lots of jargon, which I don't understand the meaning of at all, which is even more dangerous. So we don't understand things like debt and deficits. Uh, we hear some politicians apply the household metaphor to national economies, but households cannot print their own money. Accurate understanding, of course, of political ideology and confirmation bias tends to fill in these gaps. So my motivation for hosting this panel is to fulfill a necessary public education function for our listeners and our community. We all need money to live. What happens when governments borrow money, uh, particularly the federal government? As so much of our social services are delivered by municipalities, why can't municipalities borrow money to fund their, their program? And how do governments at all levels pay for the programs and services they deliver to us? Is debt something to be avoided at all costs, or is it just a normal part of doing business? What will be the impacts of all this borrowing on our taxes? How should individuals and families be managing their money as the pandemic rolls on? It's difficult to discuss these matters without layering on, layering on political ideology, uh, but for the first few minutes at least, I'd like to try to stick to uh, uh, the basic mechanics of the system, ideology-free, if we will. Of course, once we get into the politics side of it, of course, we're going to have to make those links. So start at home. Where will the money, I'm going to finish this ramble with a question for you here. So where will the money come from in order to get Peterborough up and running again? Now, granted, most of our municipal services, water, garbage, collection, emergency services, and so on, have continued uninterrupted, funded in part by our property taxes. Our hospital and public health department have stayed on the job, and thank goodness. But what about the business community? Our downtown, for example, was relatively healthy, uh, I said relatively, prior to the shutdown. But what will it take to get stores and businesses back open for business? Maybe you better direct that one, Bill. <laughs> no, I, I do not dare. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, let's, let's lean, lean on Stu on this one. I think that's more his wheel. Well, I'll take a run at it. Um, I think what it's going to take to start is consumer confidence. Um, I think consumers have been um, properly rattled by, um, and, you know, frankly, frightened by the prospect of this pandemic. Uh, for many of us, it's our first pandemic. And people... <laughs> Stuart, could I ask you, what does that phrase actually mean, consumer confidence? Uh, people's, uh, the, the, the confidence to leave your home and go downtown and walk into a store, to go out and uh, socialize, to go to a concert. 
And, you know, we're a long way from going to a concert. Uh, depending on who you believe, we may never have a vaccine. So consumer confidence, I think, is going to be the number one issue that we are going to all have to deal with. And I have to say that business is going to drive that because they're the ones who are driving safety measures. They're the ones who are insisting that people coming into their shops are are properly taken care of, including their employees. So I'm going to say consumer confidence is probably critical to any sort of a return to what some people might call normal. You also mentioned political ideology. There's economic ideology. So there's also a return to normal. What is that actually going to mean? I think in Peterborough specifically, we're really blessed with uh, with a balanced economy. You know, you've got a fairly significant government or public sector from the hospitals, universities, uh, the government agencies, you know, municipal employees, teachers, uh, you know, the school boards, all public servants. And so we're very healthy when it comes to that. We've got agriculture. Food security is going to be an issue. And we have uh, we produce a lot of food in this area. Uh, Manufacturing still fairly strong and largely unaffected, you know, as far as the manufacturers that we have in this area. Uh, and then tourism, tourism is going to be, you know, the one that takes the biggest hit. So anyway, go ahead, Bill. Stuart, just a question. It's my uh, naivete here. How big is manufacturing now in Peterborough? I mean, historically, we were at one point, we were one of the larger hubs in, I, I have been told, in Canada. Of course, that's changed. How big is it now? Well, Ontario was one of the largest hubs uh, in Canada. There's been some three or 400,000 jobs lost in Ontario to manufacturing. And I don't think that's any different in Peterborough. I don't have a percentage for you, but I would still say it's one of the main pillars of the, of the local economy is the, the jobs created by manufacturers, most of them small. You've certainly still got some big employers in in the area, Pepsi, QTG, Siemens. Um, you know, people, a lot of people leave the area to work in manufacturing on the lakeshore. But it's still it's still a significant employer. But I don't I don't have a percentage of the economy. Now, I understand our municipalities and, of course, the city of Peterborough, by law, cannot borrow money. And, Sylvia, you and I were chatting before we before everyone uh, logged on here. And your feeling was, but they should be able to. So. Well, I, I think I'd like to clarify that a bit. I think the time given this period that we're, we're coming into, I think that there should municipalities should be allowed to uh, run deficits for, say, four or five years. I have a column coming out this week, I think. Yes, this week in Peterborough, this week on this issue, partially on this issue. I think, I think, and I gather there's some pressure being put on the, uh, the provincial government, of course, municipalities are constitutionally creatures of the province, to allow or to talk about the whole idea of allowing, as the other levels of government can, municipalities to run deficits for a period of time. Right. Um, and of course, the deficit, a deficit as opposed to a debt is there's, you have uh, more going out than you have coming in. And, and we're going to be facing, you know, some really major, major challenges. The other thing I'm suggesting in the column and is that the city take a look at perhaps going through an exercise, which is an intensive one, and the staff may not be happy, but of, of zero-based budgeting. In other words, go right back to the core. You start at zero, you don't layer on anything, and you take a look at all the programs you're delivering, and 
in fact, start from square one. What I don't think should happen, and it's an issue that was raised by the chairman of finance recently, is taking the money from the PI sale, which it's not a check hasn't been cut yet. And, the, you know, I know the energy board has given the go ahead and everything, but as many as slipped, it's the cup and the lip, first of all. But assuming you get the money, it's supposed to be, you know, invested and the, and the proceeds go to capital works a long period of time. To use that money just to, you know, bail bail accounts out politically, I think is a, is a, is a mistake. But I, no, when it comes to deficits, I think maybe the time has come, given what we're facing, that in, like the federal government, like the provincial government, the municipal government should be taken seriously as a level of government and should be allowed to, with strict controls, and for yeah. a period of time, run deficits. There's a reason, by the way, having said that. Sure. I sound, it sounds terribly, uh, <laughs> may even sound informed. As I said to you off air, there's a reason I didn't appoint myself chairman of finance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, 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 would, I would be in your camp for sure. Given the situation right now that municipalities have to come or, or beg, for want of a better verb, for funds from higher levels of government, what happens when the federal government, as the source of money, gives out money to municipalities as for building, let's say, affordable housing or to individuals, such as for the CERB program? Where does that money come from? And how does it get repaid? I mean, will our grandchildren and their children be in debt for their entire lives and be saddled with uh, crushing taxes? Or, as I think uh, Prime Minister Trudeau says, uh, will a growing economy and low interest rates take care of the debt? Can I just back up for a minute sure. uh, for somebody else? Uh, just on that question, Bill. Mm -hmm. uh, because of our Constitution, the federal government has great difficulty giving money directly to the municipality. The, uh, the provinces, uh, you right. know, they look at, we are the ones who, the municipalities are ours to mm -hmm. deal with. And the Prime Minister today, as this is, as we are recording this, the Prime Minister today made an announcement regarding municipalities, and it has, yes. they're giving all the gas tax uh, revenue in one bundle rather than two. That's nothing additional. The municipalities have built that into their budget. But he was being pressed by the press as to well, why don't you do more? Well, it's a very, I gather, a very involved discussion as to what the provinces will allow the federal government to do for the municipalities. So will a growing economy and low interest rates take care of this debt, or is this going to be a multi-generational burden? depends on what side of the fence you sit on. I listened to Jim Stanford on CBC Sunday Edition last weekend. And oh, good for you. So did I. It was, it was a really eye-opening because I took a macroeconomics uh, 35 years ago. Oh, man, am I ever dating myself? And at the time, <laughs> a federal government's printing money, in effect, was considered to be uh, the first step in heading towards a massive depression and, in, you know, terrible inflation and all sorts of nasty things. And he was arguing that it doesn't have a hell of being the difference and that it's actually what we need at this point in time, which I really had to sit and ponder for a while because that wasn't the way I was taught. But it's, it is interesting. At this point in time, I think what the federal government has done has been almost exactly what we've needed. The problem is they need to start turning the tap off 
and get things back on track so that we don't get so into debt that the payments on the debt eventually, when interest rates start to rise again, because they, that's inevitable, eventually we will have to service that debt. And that's where things could get a little ugly. But right now, the very, very low interest rates and an economy poised to hopefully take back off to where it was before all this hit, this isn't really, I don't think, a huge concern. Well, and, and, and Gwyneth, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think ever in history there's been a time when the entire world had to deal with the same type of economic downturn where, you know, usually in a situation, if you're dealing with something, you're dealing it, you know, a little more micro in terms of you have to print money on your own in comparison to the rest of the world that doesn't. But this may be the first time in history that the entire world has to print money. Well, Paul, the, uh, you know, the Great Depression. Correct. A lot yeah. of the world was, was in the same was in the same situation. Yeah. Developed world at least from 29 to the beginning of the war, 1939. Well, now we're getting into the, the the meat and substance of my my deep ignorance here. How does money retain its value, and are we at risk of changing that value? When I say we, uh, as a country, Canada, if we continue to print money for things like CERB, for things like well, all these good programs that right now we need, what will happen to the value of money? And is that what a recession is, or is, would that actually lead, lead to a depression? As a child, I was told that in Germany in the early 1920s, you had to get a wheelbarrow and fill it with paper money in order to buy a loaf of bread. Now, obviously hyperbole, but how is it that a loaf of bread costs, took up in uh, the paper the other day, two seventy-nine, or a bag of potatoes costs five bucks? I mean, how is that set, and what happens to that when we keep on printing money? I think uh, a lot of people are asking that question right now. To Paul's point, uh, I think in terms of... Uh, Greece, uh, as a as a company, um, you know, through all of the fuss about um, Brexit and you know uh, the UK leaving the European Union, at the at the same time, Greece was in severe trouble as a country, unable to service their debt, and there was a lot of speculation about uh, what to do with Greece. Well, now it's the entire world that's in that uh, in that similar yeah. situation. So I, for me, it's it's a question. I'm not sure what the answer is, and I'm not sure if the if the fundamentals of the free enterprise system are adequate uh, to deal with it. Right. So I guess we're going to see. Gwyneth made the point about the the CBC um, item on on Sunday on the Sunday edition. Michael Enright that. Uh, this this economist uh, is quite well known. Has a number of books out. Jim Stanford. He is a, a left leaning economist. He's worked for. Uh, I think he's, he works now for or has worked recently for Unifor. His analysis was that as long as interest rates remain low, you don't worry about it, which sort of flies in the face of. Certainly, my early financial education when I was doing part-time jobs as a as a teenager that no that that, that when you get into debt it's very bad. Uh, at least this was the the teaching in uh, certainly my my household. So, uh, Bill, do you think um, I I guess I'm a Keynesian and and if I try to describe where I am on on the on the, and there aren't many Keynesians I suspect still left. Uh, Sylvia, could you do, could you define that phrase? What is? No, well, uh, no, I'm not going to define that. Phrase. 
you know, they, they said, they, they, you know, the, the line about economists is if you line all the economists up in the world, they'll all point in a different direction. <laughs> the question is, and I know he did. I heard a bit of that program, and he did make reference to Roosevelt and the New Deal. Yes. And and surely to some extent, it's and and that was based on Keynesian theory. In fact, Keynesian was big in in, in that period. And surely it depends to some extent why you're printing money or what, like in the in the depression, the alphabet agencies of the New Deal. The Civilian Conservation Corps, the, the National Recovery Administration, Works Progress Administration, etc., were there to put people to work. So money was being spent, but it was putting people to work and giving them hope. And I think we had a discussion on an earlier show that mm -hmm. the problem was the New Deal in the war in the end didn't really get the states out of the depression. The war did. Right. The analysis of that was that they stopped too soon. They were worried about inflation, and so they stopped injecting into those programs too soon. That's one economic analysis. But surely it depends on what's happening to that money you print, or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Well, let's let's go back to the Great Depression. I mean, what sure. what finally pulled the U.S. particularly, but the world out of the Great Depression, but printing money because they were spending money for on the war. I mean, that's printing money, isn't it? Yes, it is. You're right. Well, and kind of to what I was talking about earlier there, I, I think that is the world's only way out of this. Obviously, you know, to your point, Bill, on the, the $2.79 piece of bread, as long as we're not devaluing our currency to other countries, our bread's not going to be $10 a loaf. I think this is the one, you know, again, to your point there as well, Sylvia, there are some similar ones, but this might be the one that has every country in the world having to do something. And, yeah. and printing money might be the only option into in the way out. And again, equal across the board, so no one's devaluing their currency. So what's the difference between Canada printing money uh, to get the country back up on its feet and, let's say, a small kind of Madagascar or Zimbabwe printing a lot of money? I, well, I think where you were, where, where I was expecting you to go with that, Bill, was what's the difference between Canada printing money and our world printing money? Um, that to me, sure. that that to me would be the question. The Keynesian theory is based on the fact that consumer demand is the primary driving force behind an economy, and I think it's fair to say in in most countries, um, China might be an exception, where you know manufacturing probably drives their probably drives their economy, but it's it's consumer demand that I think is hurting us uh, the most. It's uh, you know consumer access has you know essentially been shut down because of the pandemic, and the rec the recovery of of consumer demand, including consumer confidence. Um, and it is, I think, going to be the slowest to respond. So I think that's where I think that's where the trouble lies is getting back to normal. I, I believe is going to take a while because in a consumer-driven economy, um, uh, the the pace is going to be glacial. Yeah, and 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 what we didn't have during the depression, what and Paul was right in a way that this historically is probably a first. We we haven't had this 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 health, this a pandemic layered on top of everything else and getting back to normal. The normal is not going to be what we knew as the normal. And you can't just simply go in and open a restaurant up anymore. And you, and, and so it really is unique in that we've not had the, 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 the health, the, the medical considerations in the past that we have today. I don't know if there's any other period. Uh, I don't know what had certainly during the 
the 1918-1919, the flu, there weren't the same restrictions. There weren't the same limitations. There wasn't the same knowledge. What I was reading, um, and I, it, I'm just going to jump in here because uh, it, it's it's an article that I just uh, looked at uh, over the last week called the 90% economy, and this is in the Economist magazine. And if you're interested in the topic today, then uh, it's certainly something you could Google the 90% economy. But they were talking about the Spanish flu and uh, and um, sort of that overwhelming desire to return to normal, but uh, they said back then there was a dramatic difference in citizens' expectations of government. So I think, you know, the role that government play is playing today is dramatically different than it was back then as well. But I'll just, I'll just touch on what, what they, how they described, and this, this gets back to what we were talking about was a consumer driven economy. When they talk about the 90% economy, they're talking about the economy as a whole and manufacturing in particular getting back to 90% of what was normal. But what happened, but, but in, within a 90% economy, domestic, and this is happening in China right now, domestic flights are down by a third. Discretionary consumer spending, things on restaurants, for example, fallen by 40%. Uh, hotel stays are a third of normal. Unemployment is three times the official level at around 20%. That's in a 90% economy versus a 100% economy. And that scared the hell out of me. Sure. Now, somewhere back around grade nine or grade 10, when I definitely wasn't paying attention, I, the, the fact was floated by me that our Money used to be backed by gold. The gold standard is a phrase I remember. I don't really know what it means, but it's stuck there in my brain like an old phone number. So the gold standard used to be behind our money, and now our money floats. So am I right in saying back in the day, we used to be able to say, well, a Canadian dollar is worth so much in gold, uh, or maybe a 100 Canadian dollars or 1,000 Canadian dollars, Whereas today it's a floating value, depending on the U.S. dollar. Is that fair? Is that accurate? I'm an accountant, not an economist, but I definitely know. <laughs> that, since we've got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, definitely not backed by anything like that anymore. It's all open market economy and the demand for our debt and our dollars amongst other countries in the world. And I guess... Back to Paul's point, the only reason why I'm not crying in my wine is because I figure everybody is suffering almost as badly as we are. And so, you know, that lack of demand for our dollars is not going to hit us as hard as it would have had we been the only one hit by a pandemic. Well, and, I, and I think in, this, in that same breath, we almost got the American dollar as the gold standard now, right? It's not actually the case, but obviously them being our, our uh, most, uh, you know, our closest neighbor, we almost compare ourselves solely to the American dollar. And that's what, you know, in terms of devaluing our currency in regard to the American dollar, we may end up being in a much better position coming out of this than the States will, which may end up being a great thing for Canada. Oh, really? Now, how would that work? 
like macro or micro? Like, like there's, I think there's a lot of huge things at play there. I, I personally, I think from a from a supply chain side of things, I think our our Canada is in a much better position to bring supply chains closer to home. And I think it's been slowly happening over you know the last decade or so. And even from a community perspective, I think we'll be much quicker at adopting to the idea of the the, the local standard. And places like Peterborough will have an opportunity to, to hopefully thrive because we don't don't and won't depend on large, larger economies and uh, importing and exporting as much as before. But again, these are not overnight solutions. And uh, sure. Um, but that's, you know, that's how I would, from a, a macro perspective, looking forward to, you know, the whole idea of bringing supply chains and community spending closer to home. Right, so localizing the economy. Can I jump in on that? Because I think this, sure. this is, uh, I mean, uh, it's close to my heart as somebody who runs a chamber, you know, we're all about the local. There's a really, really good, uh, really good report from uh, RBC called uh, Eight Ways That COVID Will Transfer transform the economy and they talk specifically about um, trade and the move towards protectionism, uh, fewer imports, higher prices as a result. I mean, the, the reason that China is the manufacturing juggernaut is because they were able to make things cheaper and Walmart insisted that they make it 20% cheaper every year. Um, and that's that's essentially what's been driving globalization is that uh, the, you know, the, the money goes where where people can make things for less. But I think there's going to be a fundamental shift. I don't think there will ever be a universal shift because I think that those basic fundamentals will still be there. Uh, you'll see, still see the big box store parking lots full, but I think there will be a shift to much more of a hyper-local sentiment. And in a consumer-driven society, that can actually have a fairly significant impact and so this, this RBC report talks about eight different metrics that they've measured on how things are going to change. So I would certainly recommend a Google search for that as well. But on trade, they talk about fewer imports, higher prices, uh, and more protectionism. This is an RBC, RBC economics report, eight ways okay. that COVID will transform the economy and disrupt every business. It's good reading. Okay. They make any mention, or, or and Paul, you're involved very much in the downtown. Uh, do they make any mention of the impact of Amazon on local business, on local retail, on local businesses? Because so there was, there was a uh, one of the radio shows recently. There was someone on talking about the, uh, you know, the not positive, I might, I might say, impact of the juggernaut Amazon on a lot of local. Right. So there, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack there. But first of all, lots of local retailers use Amazon as their delivery model. Uh, the Chamber, I mean, I've had four phone calls today talking to people about the Chamber designing our own um, e-commerce platform so that the businesses that are not online, and many are, uh, uh, can get online and can sell their products in a much, much easier way simply by being a member of the chamber. So we're working very, very hard on that and we're, we're close to a concept on that. Terry Guile with the DBIA, um, shot the puck really early on that and created a platform called The Borough, uh, B-O-R-O. It's not true e-commerce, but it allows you to support, you know, sort of the local economy. Um, Sylvia, to your point, they're talking, certainly talking about more shipping. And by shipping, I don't necessarily mean Amazon. I mean, even even things like curbside pickup. Uh, I think for for a while, until we are free and clear, 
of uh, the pandemic, uh, consumer confidence, as I mentioned, is going to be uh, a factor. They, this, this RBC report says 70% of the population is expected to avoid public spaces after the lockdown eases up, simply because they're still afraid. They don't trust that uh, that they're they're safe. But at the same time, 78% of Canadians are more likely to choose Canadian brands and products as a result of the pandemic. So you get this shift from buying it for the lowest price, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter where it came from, it doesn't matter that the carbon footprint of shipping it overseas in a container and boxing it up in a cardboard box and having it driven to your front porch, that's actually going to start to matter. So I think companies like Amazon, uh, are, you know, or this isn't going to kill Amazon, but I think that there will be a much more local, uh, a much more localized process in place. At least that's what I hope for. I meant to slip in here a question about the difference between debt and deficit. We hear both words. One seems to be okay now and then in government circles, uh, and yet debt is uh, tends to be avoided. Now, as a homeowner and a parent, I try to avoid debt wherever possible. But during lean times, like now, uh, I occasionally have to dip into my secured line of credit. Now, businesses need to depend on debt to grow, but what about governments? Some would have us believe that government debt is a betrayal of public trust, while others merely shrug. Several of us have referenced the Jim Stanford uh, interview on the weekend while Stephen Harper was on Twitter the week before berating the current government uh, about uh, its no. spending. <laughs> really? <laughs> so, so which is it, <laughs> I guess, is my question. I've, uh, I've, I thought this wasn't going to be political. Well, we, we have to get because it's not separated. You know, you can't separate them. I was going to defer to Sylvie on that one. She'd be the one with the most experience on that for sure. No, not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just made the argument, or part of an argument as to why, in fact, we city should be allowed to run deficits. But deficit, deficit is really when you have, you know, you have uh, less coming in from your, your uh, from everything than you have going out paying for everything. So to put a to put a bit of a a number to it, our projected deficit, and everybody was in quite a fuss when you know the current government ran you know was running a series of of deficits and and had planned to continue, and I think this year's was projected to be something like uh, twenty nine billion dollars. It's now something in the range of two hundred and fifty billion, and the national the national debt coming out of this is expected to be around a trillion dollars. So, you know, if you think that's not if you think that's not sobering, then you should do some more reading. But uh, but at the same time, no. Well, I I thought this was pints in politics. Where are the where are the pints, Bill? Um, <laughs> virtual virtual pints. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I I actually have changed my thinking on this. And actually, one of the most interesting conversations was during our uh, Chamber of Commerce debate uh, during the federal election campaign, and mm. uh, Miriam Monsef and Mike Skinner and oh my gosh, the NDP candidate I can't think of her name. Candace Shaw. Candace Shaw. Candace yeah. Shaw got into a really interesting discussion, and I and uh, I, for the first time I, sh I shifted my thinking around comparing household debt to government debt 
And they're not the same because a household economy is different than uh, a government economy. So I really appreciated that conversation. And I think that there's obviously a role uh, for public debt municipally, uh, provincially, federally, but obviously there's uh, there's a limit because at some point the cows come home. Well, that was going to be uh, a, a vein I wanted to expose here. Uh, could Canada hit a debt wall? And in fact, what is a debt wall? In other words, could we get into trouble so that no one will step up to lend us any more money? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Short answer. Well, I, and I, think, I think, Bill, you're... You know, after the Depression, and it's possible, the municipalities went, did go bankrupt. Uh, I grew up in one in Midland, Ontario, was among those municipalities that went bankrupt. Right. Uh, and uh, so there would be uh, the, uh, I guess, the final the final debt wall in that case. And it was left, in fact, to the Ontario Municipal Board of the deal of the day to deal with uh, the uh, with the bankrupt municipalities. So that would be one of the reasons why the deficit financing has been discouraged. And Bill, on that point, I don't know if there's going to be a lot of haves and have-nots. There's going to be a lot of have-nots, I think, in this situation, right? So I don't think there's going to be any countries out there loaning a bunch of money around the world. So, again, going back to your early conversation, I, I do think probably our, our only way out of this is to print more money. And I don't think I don't think the access to funds from around the world are going to be what they once were. If I could just throw this out there, it, sure. it strikes me that the conversation is going to be and, and it might not even be a conversation. It might just be forced upon us. It's what what will the new normal look like? If we are if we are if we are expecting everything to just return to the same old globalization free enterprise system that we've all come to know and love, he, well, says, no he says he says tongue in cheek, then we're crazy. It's not it's not going to be a return to the way things were. I think the way that we work, uh, the way that we shop, uh, the way that we trade. Uh, you know, the, the, everything is going to be different, and it's very difficult to know now what that's going to look like. On the one hand, uh, they say that there's going to be even more wealth concentrated in the hands of the major corporations. Uh, I was reading something about, uh, just as an example, the the airlines, for example, the major airlines swallowing up the smaller airlines that go out of business. Uh, just just as a loose example, uh, you could talk about Amazon as a as a juggernaut um, buying up companies that they've put out of business. The tech the tech companies, uh, you know, the the Facebooks and the Twitters and the um, Microsofts purchasing purchasing companies that they have that they they either want their intellectual property or they just want to you know they just want to scoop them up and put them out of business as competitors so i can certainly see that happening but at the same time i can see a dramatic swing because i think people realize first of all they realize how vulnerable we are i think there's a new appreciation for the value of an employer uh, and the value of an employee uh, but I think that is what's going to drive that that localization that I that I hope we see. You know, the, the, I suspect there have been very few periods, certainly in, or in history, where you where people recognize that they are living at a major historic moment. Yes. The world is not going to go back to what it was. Certainly not in my lifetime, I don't think, or maybe my grandson's lifetime. No, it's going to be a very different and, and very seldom 
Very seldom in history, I think, has it been so evident that we are living on a precipice. Can I ask, just because it's something that, I, that I've been thinking about a lot, and I'd love to hear everyone's opinion on it, because I'm a bit, go for, go for it. A, bit of a, a planning nerd or community building nerd. And, you know, over the past decades, you know, pretty much every major center in the world has, you know, built around the idea of transit and intensification and force, all those kind of things. You know, I think we're very lucky from a Peter, Peterborough perspective or a smaller town in Canada or a smaller town USA that we haven't really got to that point yet. But what does the future hold for cities that have been built around public transit, most importantly, subways? Um, and if all of your real estate infrastructure is based around the idea of access via subways, what happens to those cities? Because I, you know, there will be a lot of people that will never get on a subway ever again. And, you know, if you think of North, North Toronto, all of a sudden a subway stop pops up and 50,000 units a year later are around that because they need the access to the core. There's some cities in the world that are just going to flat out change. And I think we're, again, very lucky that we're not, I don't think we're going to change a ton in that capacity. But I'm, I would be interested to hear everyone's thought on what, like, you know, the New Yorks, the LAs, the, you know, major, major centers in the world that are kind of our meccas, they are going. And Paul, the whole the whole recent planning regime in the province of Ontario, uh, certainly when it comes to Toronto, for example, is to encourage intensification at major at major transit stops. So you Paul, as, a, as someone who rents properties, you're probably not going to want to hear this, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure that people are going to need to commute to their downtown office. Yes, look, I've heard that. Look at look at the the remote work that's being done, and you know certainly by a long shot, not everyone is unemployed. Lots of people are still working, and they've they've figured it out. And and that that goes to shopping as well. If you can order, uh, even if you can order locally, pick up your product, have it delivered. Uh, those are the businesses that are going to thrive, uh, the businesses that will support that that different way of doing business. Uh, and I would say including working remotely. Don't you think at the end of the day, uh, humans are social animals and we'll get a little bit sick and tired of sitting at home all the time and having stuff delivered to us or only going out to pick it up? I mean, isn't there going to be some pent up demand for just going out and socializing and shopping and doing stuff? I mean, my son was bemoaning to me the other day. He's like, I don't know what the heck we're going to do with ourselves this summer. He's like, there's no music fest. There's nothing to do. He's like, this is going to be a terrible summer. And I think that eventually people will just be fed up with not being able to do fun stuff. And they're going to want to wander downtown and go, you know, go into shops. I agree. I just don't know what that's going to look like. I totally agree. We did a chamber event two weeks ago now. Um, you know, we're sort of famous for our networking events. And so we finally tried a, a virtual uh, networking event, a breakfast uh, a breakfast event. There was 40 people on the call. There was tears uh, from people who were so lonely and so disconnected mm. and hadn't, mm. talk, hadn't talked to anyone except their two-year-old in two months. Like it was, <laughs> it was, it was moving. So you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Gwyneth. I just don't know what it's going to look like. And I'm not a wet blanket by any means. I'm just. No, no, no. I'm just saying that it's just going to be different and we're going to have to find out what that looks like. Businesses that are going to survive are going to be the ones that are creative, that know how to create a unique experience 
but also a safe one. Um, and, and they're they're going to be the ones who are capable of a fairly quick pivot. We've seen a lot of them already do that. The folks who were you know, not really cut out to be entrepreneurial to start with, and their mar- their businesses were marginally financially successful. They won't make it, but a lot will because they'll they'll listen, they'll think, they'll they'll pivot, they'll create, and they'll make sure it's safe and unique, and people will come back because they can't stand being stuck inside. Yeah, I agree. And I and I totally agree with you, Stu. I, I, my point more so was on those larger cities. I don't know how they come back from that. Places like Peterborough, we, we can pivot on some of those changes because we're not that exposed in any one. But again, like when you're, I don't know, I wouldn't want to go into square footage of a place like New York and how many towers they have that would, you know, would be exposed to what you just mentioned. It's scary. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I mean, look at Calgary right now <laughs> in terms of downtown real estate that has no... Uh, no occupants. I'm wondering in cases like uh, not so applicable to Peterborough, we have very few towers. Uh, but you know, could uh, the office towers do to some extent empty because people, a lot of people, or some people, or some companies will encourage working from home, etc. Convert into condos, into into rental, into residential. Because you really want residential in the downtown. Yeah, good talk. Well, and that's kind of my point. So that I think it's very in Peterborough, we can pivot on some of those things. There's no, we're not exposed in any one type of, of real estate or one type. Of, you know, there's, lot, there's equal balance of commercial, retail, restaurant, uh, and residential, and we can convert some of that stuff. But some of the larger centers, again, that they yeah. never be able to convert. There's, they wouldn't be enough demand for it because the place of work would go away. So they're not, they're only there because their place of work is across the street or, or accessible via subway. So, Well, with the wisdom of hindsight, I now see that perhaps I just needed one question for this afternoon. <laughs> and that question would have been, if I could wind back the hands of time, what will post-pandemic Peterborough look like? You know, and you, you all of you have given some really intriguing interpretations as to answers to that. It sounds like, if I can blunder through a summary, it sounds like it's going to be a lot more localized in terms of business activity, both production, distribution, uh, we're, we're growing what we eat here, etc. We're, we're buying what we make here. It sounds like it's going to be a, a lot less dependent on elongated supply chains, indeed, that are international. And it sounds like it's going to be uh, a lot more entrepreneurial and maybe a bit less corporate in the large sense of the word corporate. What else am I missing? I'm just going to say what Bill said. That's, uh, I, think you've, I think you've nailed it. Okay. Now, on the, the grim side of the ledger, uh, of course, none of us were alive during the Great Depression. Although oh, not quite. No, okay, okay. <laughs> and Sylvia's heard this story, but uh, my mother passed away in 2010. But before she, she, she spent her last four years in Peterborough. And I remember once asking her, what were the, the years immediately before my birth like? And uh, I was born during World War II. And so she said something that I found very compelling. She said, well, during the Depression, no one had any money. Everything was very tight. Even if people were working, the money didn't go very far. Then the war came, and suddenly everyone had money. And uh, so I'm wondering how that layers on to the observation that while none of us were uh, remember the, uh, the Depression, and but we all remember 2008. And so I guess my question is, are we at risk of repeating 
either of those debacles again. In other words, will the 2020s be another quote-unquote lost decade? I don't believe so. I mean, the, the 2008 financial crisis was caused by bank deregulation in the U.S. The U.S. caused the Depression, too, pretty much in the 1920s. Uh, this time, for a change, they didn't cause the problem. And so, you know, and, and it this time, it's, it's worldwide. So I don't think we're going to have a lost decade. I think we might lose 2020. I think uh, this year is going to be a bit of a disaster. But I think we'll bounce back a lot better than uh, any of those other, you know, recessions, depressions in 28, 2008, sorry, or uh, the other, because the, every, everything was fairly healthy before this hit. And this wasn't caused by a financial crisis or a stock market crisis. This was a health crisis that affected everybody. And so I think, and, and, every, and, and all the countries were doing pretty well before this. So I think we'll bounce back pretty quickly, especially if we get that vaccine we're looking for. Yeah, what I don't want to I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but just for you know, <laughs> for sake of argument, you know, uh, some for some uh, illnesses or they can't find a vaccine. And there's the assumption we're going to find a vaccine here, and uh, but we don't know when that's going to happen. Well, they don't uh, have one for uh, they don't they don't have one for SARS, and they don't itself will change as the flu virus does, etc. Yeah. Um, uh, I hope you're right. In fact, <laughs> they don't have a vaccine for uh, for AIDS. You know. The, the interview I heard on the weekend uh, wasn't Jim Stanford. It was it was a medical doctor, uh, and he was uh, he was anticipating that regardless of a vaccine, uh, there could also be some sort of an HIV type cocktail uh, that at least treats uh, treats the symptoms. I think in, at some point there will be a return to what might look familiarly like like normal. But I think Peterborough, just to answer your question, Bill, I think is really, really well positioned. Even even if there's a drive towards more remote, remote working, would you rather work from your home in Scarborough or your home from Peterborough? So I think you're going to, you know, from a lifestyle point of view, we've always had it good. You may remember John Grant, who was then uh, the uh, president of Quaker here had an article which ran in the Globe and Mail. I think it was based on a speech John gave. And uh, and how how easy it was to attract, to get employees here. Yeah. But you leave work and you're out fishing 15 minutes later. There's always been that advantage of you when you'd rather be in Peterborough. Yeah, well, and Paul, you know, Paul Bennett is the poster child for this whole, this whole yeah. sentiment of being, you know, an attractive place to live, uh, the downtown. You know, over to you, Paul. But, uh, you know, you, you represent what is all, all is good about Peterborough. That's funny because I was about to say the same thing about you, Stu. I was oh, okay. <laughs> That's what I was going for. <laughs> the way of life in Peterborough, and I think we all agree about it. So I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with, with all of you. I think Peterborough is very well positioned in terms of going forward. But I also think the world's going to change now more than it ever has. So, you know, I, that, that way of life that Peterborough offers. I, I made the comment the other day that I'm so lucky that, I, that I've traveled the amount that I have in my life because it may become a luxury that people don't yes. I thought exactly the same thing yesterday. And, yes. and interesting. Some of those places that, that, you know, depend on travel, like if you, you know, at any point last year, any of us could have gone to Cuba for $500. Some of those economies that are so ultra dependent on travel, you know, again, the world is just going to change in a whole different way over the coming decade. Now, I made uh, reference to 
2020 is perhaps being another lost decade, and the consensus was no. I mean, Gwen Sanser uh, put that to rest. Uh, another grim topic, taxes. The level of spending by all levels of government necessarily mean higher taxes. No, but it doesn't necessarily mean lower taxes, which I mean is pressure. <laughs> I, thought, I, I never ever in all my political career ever promised not to raise taxes. Right. The promise you can't keep. And there are municipalities have needs and you have responsibilities to this generation and to the next generation. You do your best to keep them as low as possible. Given what we're facing, I mean, there. I know there's a push to have no tax increase this year. There's a posting on Facebook the other, the other day from somebody I thought should have known better was saying he did no tax increase for five. Okay, what's the city going to look like if you do that? Right. I think, Sylvia, and you can please weigh in on this, I think you will see a difference uh, in in government programs. Uh, yes. I think you'll see a, sort of a rebalancing of what the federal, provincial, and municipal governments are responsible for. Um, I think you'll see some reduced spending uh, in certain areas. I don't know what that looks like, but, you know, it may, it, it, the, the way we get to, you know, to a, sort of a, a balanced tax approach is yeah. is going to take an adjustment of some sort. Yeah, that's what I thought, you know, municipally, if you go back to a zero-based budget if, and look at each department, you probably will find reduced spending in areas. And also, if the province, for example, would simply take back some of those things that Mr. Harris, not to get political, that <laughs> Yeah. For the program, like social housing and welfare programs, the province would take back what is really their responsibility. Local delivery is always the best. Financing of those programs, which are just downloaded, you know, uh, you know, and it wasn't just Harris. It continued on. Oh, yeah. Success of governments. But, you know, yeah. if they take those back, that would help a big a lot. No, I just said I, I think Sylvia's got a good. Yeah. Well, we're winding down here, but I did want to take the open the politics box, <laughs> look inside. Oh, which, <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, you have. <laughs> which economists have got it right, uh, left or right? I mean, last week uh, I, I, we've referenced this a few times. Jim Stanford was uh, a left-wing economist, was on the CBC, and he was praising the, the current federal government. And during the same week, Stephen Harper, his background in econ economics, uh, launched a pointed attack on the federal liberals. So, which side is right, and why? And how how will we tell? <laughs> I'm not an Anglican for nothing. <laughs> in the, middle. So, the middle road. The middle road. Left and right. I mean, you know, um, they're extremes. Uh, I I tend to I tend to play. I think the responsibility of the government is to the, is to the people, which means that you're going to. I guess I would spend more on programs than. Mr. Her uh, than, than the former prime minister would, but uh, I think in the, the, either extreme is wrong. I think the truth is somewhere, you know, some economic theory somewhere in the middle. Um, okay. Will, Anyone else? I will gingerly weigh in on this. Um, I think you know if you, if you look from the perspective of, and I do not want to be political uh, about this because. I don't think there's anyone who has surprised anyone more than Premier Ford. Right. Um, and so, yeah. you know, if you want to pull politics out of any situation, then just consider that. But you know, at, at the same time, the, the th think of anything more enjoyable than for our prime minister to go on camera every morning and hand out money like Oprah. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a classic it's a classic. So, so, you know, for me, you know, that's that's as political as I get, but it's also 
you know, as Gwyneth said uh, right off the top, it's been handled uh, pretty much as best as it could be. But I don't see this as a political situation on very many levels at all. And Stephen Harper can, you know, say whatever he wants to try to politicize it. But I don't think most people are looking at it through that lens. And I think one Just of the, the really refreshing things about about uh, Mr. Ford at the moment is, and the and the prime, and I guess perhaps maybe most of the premiers, maybe all of the premiers, is the fact that they have, to the degree that they can, set politics aside. It really impressed me, actually. Okay. And I, and I think that's what might set Canada aside, right? I think you know the the difference between us and our neighbors to the south is that we aren't red or blue and bleed one or the other. I think. Agree with Sylvia wholeheartedly that we all function down the middle and want to find what's right for our country, where we hopefully don't bring politics as much as the importance of people, right? So, and I think that's what Canadians do best. Yes, right. It's tragic what's happening. I heard an expression, um, you know, and this is an example of what you get when you try to when you try to politicize it. And it was an expression about Andrew Shear, who has stepped on every rake in the yard. And I just, <laughs> I, it still makes me laugh when I think of that. But I mean, yeah, that's what happens when you try to get political in the middle of a pandemic. People just don't care. Well, and on that note, <laughs> stepping on rakes and yards. So, Gwyneth, uh, Stuart, Sylvia, and Paul, thank you so much for uh, joining me uh, for this panel discussion. Are there any last thoughts you have about this situation and what people should carry forward as Peterborough opens up? Well, I think we, I think there's a wonderful opportunity here for, uh, for our city council for, you know, it, to take a look at what Peterborough of the future might look at and to try to put into play or try to, you know, think of programs and, and design that may help that happen. You're weighted down so much with the, with the dismal situation around the pandemic. Let's look at the opportunities to plan for the future. A reboot. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. That's my statement. Always with every challenge, there's a big opportunity. And I think we have That's a, right, Paul. a huge opportunity here. And uh, if we all get up and work and stay positive, I think at, uh, 10 years down the road, we'll look back at it being a positive event. Yeah. And there's excitement to that. Interesting. Anyone else? No, I agree. I, I think there are opportunities here. It has been a very scary time for a lot of people, and I don't want to yeah. make light of that, but we do need to look for the opportunities, and I think there are some good things that will come out of this, and uh, just everybody needs to be as positive as they can be. I said this earlier, but uh, for me, it's the, it's the new appreciation for what it takes to open up a business and employ people. Uh, and the value yes. and the value of having one of those jobs um, to me that's, that's a good outcome if people have a, a better understanding of what it takes then that's good well thank you so much any feedback uh, send me a note bill.templeman man at gmail.com thanks for listening until Thursday June 11th when another guest panel gathers to explore the impact of this pandemic on the nonprofit world this is Bill Templeman